There it is, Judges 17 to 21. This is the part I have not been looking forward to. How many, how many of you have been reading ahead? I mean, don't lie because you're in church, but yeah. So one person has been reading ahead, so you know what I'm talking about. So let's have a conversation. <laughs> good morning, Grace Chapel. It is good to see you and to see people starting to get healthy and come back. That is, that is awesome. Okay, Judges. We are kind of finishing it off this week and into next week. But so far, judges, how to do life without God. Be a good summary for the book. Judges, wanting a blessing from God without having a love for God. Uh, And you may, as you go through, come up with your own way to qualify, quantify the whole book and to think, this is what God was trying to say. This is what he was trying to get me to see in my own life, not in my kid's life, not in my spouse's life, not in my boss's life, not in my church's life, but in my life, right? Because that's where it starts. Um, the first 16 chapters of Judges, we've, we've done. And it gave us this, this bird's eye view um, of Israel's life. It was really God's view of their lifestyle choices. So what does God see when he looks down in America today? What would his first 16 chapters of the book of America be on our lifestyle choices? That's kind of where we were just finished with Judges, those first 16 chapters. And that overview that God had came through loud and clear by declaring over and over and over, I hope you caught it, Ben mentioned it in the announcements in chapter 3, in chapter uh, 4, in chapter 6, in chapter 10, in chapter 13. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's his view. And then now that we come to these last five chapters, um, and they give, give us this more ground level, a, a more specific, detailed view of what life in Israel was really like. It's not this summary statement. They did evil. We're given graphic detail of what this looked like. In the chapters 1 to 16, they showed us how God rescued Israel over and over and over again. But chapters 17 through 21, where we're going now, give us two case studies of the kind of spiritual condition God rescued them from. It's pretty disgusting, I just got to say. Those of you who have read it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to dwell on the sins. We're going to glance over them because they're black and white. You can read them anytime you want. And what you're going to notice in these final five chapters, it's very interesting by its admission that the uh, name of the Lord is rarely mentioned. I find that interesting. And the view we're given now in these five chapters is where humanity will end up without God. This is what it looks like This is what we are all capable of without the grace and mercy of God. And it's so bleak (laughs) that these passages are rarely preached. I mean, I'm I'm even scratching my head like, when was the last time I heard somebody preach from Judges 17 through 21? And they're rarely studied. When was the last time you read before this series Judges 17 through 21? The back-to-back episodes uh, in these five chapters are a double-barreled ending 
to this somewhat can be depressing book. It's a shotgun blast to our senses. It really is. It's like, and then just as you're getting back up, they're showing us what life can deteriorate to whenever you and I attempt to take control. Have you ever tried to take control? Come on, you have, right? doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how young you are. You have at some point, might have been this morning, you tried to take control. And whenever we take control or attempt to, we tend to step on each other on our way to getting that control. We tend to really mess things up. C.S. Lewis called these kinds of people in his book, The Abolition of Man, men without chests. I love it. He, he could coin a phrase. People may have some reasoning powers. They may have even some visceral feelings or, or drives. But C.S. Lewis says, without God, they don't have hearts. And they're not really choosing anymore at all. They don't even, they think they're making these choices, but they're not. They're being driven by their desires, their, their sin nature. They're being driven for power, for gain, to try to get ahead. They're being motivated by their fears. They're being motivated by their anger responses to situations. And every one of us in this room is in danger of being that hollow and that self-serving whenever we insist on making God tameable. Whenever we try to put God in a box, our box of our own making, in the church, marketable, what would make God look good? and we make him just plain secondary. Bob Dylan, <laughs> yeah, I know, sorry, it, it fits. Bob Dylan called it blowing in the wind. The Apostle Paul called it tossed to and fro by the waves and carry, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Jude, in his little letter, described them as wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Only by worshiping the real God in spirit and in truth can we escape the fate and then know the blessing that comes when you bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only one who has the words of eternal life, real life, now and the one that's coming. Someone said, a dead faith is being in church and thinking about fishing. <laughs> gotcha. But an alive faith is fishing, thinking about God. I like that. Okay, so the big picture in these final five chapters, the explanation of why God would record these two horrible accounts why it even happened is stated explicitly in these five chapters over and over again. Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the 21st century man. We're going to encounter homemade religion. And I think we're all probably guilty of this. 
kind of making up our own thing. We're going to encounter do-it-yourself conquest. And before watching the Israelites in the last three chapters become Canaanites, become Canaanites, God's kids. In ch- okay, chapter 17, 18, you ready? Get ready, here it comes. We begin with the introduction of one of the highest levels in Israelite society from the tribe of Levi, Levites. They are the functioning priests. They are the, they're the guys, right? And so we're introduced to one of them in his, uh, uh, soon, but first of all, there's this Israelite, and his name is Micah. He's not a Levite, but his name is Micah. He's a thief <laughs> who stole from his own mom. Okay, all right, okay. thief is low. Steal from your own mom? Come on. But he did. Then he, started, he felt guilty about it for some reason, and he returned it. And his mom did the righteous thing in her own eyes, which is a flaw in Israel at the time. And his mother said, okay, awesome. Thank you for giving the money back. I dedicate the silver that you stole and gave back to me to the Lord. Starts off good. From the hand of my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Just like, hello, ding, 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 ding. Is anybody home? Like, I, what, what are, where, I, did, mom, you started off so good, but then you went completely off the rails. What are you thinking? What are you teaching? Talk about completely blowing up a learning moment for your kid. Well, what does Micah do? Well, <laughs> he makes a shrine for this idol that his mom made out of the money that he stole and gave back. He makes a shrine in his house. It's homemade religion. It's kind of putting it together as you go along. <laughs> this feels good. This feels right. So let's tack on to the end of it all. We're doing it for the Lord. It'd be like me getting up and saying, here's what we've decided to do. Let's pray for God to bless it. That happens in church. That's wrong. Let's just do what we want to do. And, yeah, and let's, let's say a prayer at the end, and maybe at the beginning too. Let's do one in the middle, and then it'll make it all right, what we're deciding to do here. Let me read in 17. And the man Micah had a shrine, <clears throat> and he made... He went ahead and he went one step beyond the shrine. Remember back in, with Gideon, he made that ephod, and we talked about what that was, so you can go back and listen to that, find out what it was. And he made an ephod, and he made household gods. <laughs> and he ordained, okay, it gets worse. Then he ordains one of his sons who became his priest. Like he makes up his own priesthood in his own, it's, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the reason why this is happening. And then Micah, when you read on the story, he acquires, okay, I take that back. He buys off a Levite, which tells you what the character of that Levite was like, as a priest to work in his homemade shrine. And he comes to the most ridiculous spiritual and non-biblical conclusion that his prosperity that he is enjoying in life right now in the land is now guaranteed, and here's why. Verse 13 of chapter 17, now I know 
that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And you can see the thought process, right? Uh, He steals. He returns the loot. His mom forgives him and gives him the loot back. Actually, if you read back, you see she gives it all back to him along with an idol. He's now richer in life than he ever was before, and he doesn't feel guilty about it. So, what's your conclusion? This has to be according to God's favor, right? It's it's God's blessing on how I am living now, so let's ramp it up even more. (laughs) But there's a flaw in his thinking. There's a flaw in our thinking when we think that what we enjoy in this country and prosperity and freedom is because we're living so righteously. In Deuteronomy 29, God told the Israelites, before they even got to this point in the land, God said through Moses, beware. Okay, look out for this, people. Come on, because this is going to happen to you. Beware lest there be any among you, a man, a woman, doesn't matter, or even a whole clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, like Micah's household idols. Beware lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That would be Micah. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart. He's doing wrong. He hears the warning and he goes, yeah, but I'm good. (laughs) Saying, I shall be safe, just like Micah just said. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This is America today. Sorry. Very sorry. Christians today can be led astray by this same kind of thinking. I go to church. I have a Bible. I've got ten Bibles. I, you fill in the blank. And things are going pretty good compared to the rest of the world. Therefore, God blesses me. He approves of my lifestyle, even though I may live quite like a pagan through the rest of the week. (laughs) Well, then some people we read in the story from the tribe of Dan, another tribe, they're out scouting for some land for a place to settle, which tells you something about the tribe of Dan. It's been a few hundred years, and they still haven't found a place to settle in the land that God has given them. They check out Micah's priest. They, they, they recognize him, which we'll find out why later. And he tells them, you know, you guys, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. This is the guy you want to listen to, right? This bought-off Levite priest. Beware of looking to false messengers that are all around us today for a true message of assurance that you are in God's will. You will always be able to find someone who will tell you you're doing the right thing. If you look long enough and hard enough, there'll be someone who will pat you on the back and say, yeah, yeah, bless you. You're doing, you're doing good. They discover 
in their scouting, this unprotected, unsuspecting city. So they head back to headquarters with the message, we found the place where we can now live, and by the way, God is on our side. So let's print some money and put that on it too. All right, so what we go to. They come back with 600 armed men. And on the way, they stop at, the Levi, at, at Micah's house. He's not there. They steal his Levite. It's, it's such, such a wonderful world in which they live and you and I live today. And they steal all of his household goods and idols. And as you read the text, it looks like they steal all his kids too. And there's nothing he can do about it because there's 600 guys with guns, well, swords. And of course, it's all because they are so righteous and following in God's footsteps. Wow, God is on our side. Because a false prophet said so, so, while we're at it, let's steal and pillage, too. So they slaughter the city. I mean, completely lay it to waste. People, children, animals, buildings. They make it their own. They build a new city. They call it Dan. And they set up their own idols of worship. I know. How far you can fall when you take control and you tack God's name onto it. And we finally learn the name of the Levite, why they might have recognized him when they came by Micah's house earlier. It's in chapter 18, verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image, the one that Micah, Micah's mom made, <laughs> for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So for the next couple hundred years. The son, in, in Hebrew, that's a descendant of. doesn't mean he's directly the son of Moses. It's got the idea that he's the descendant of the line of Moses. Yeah, that guy, Moses. It's shocking to see that a Levite who has gone against everything that God set up through Moses and the law and through Aaron and the priesthood, a guy who will compromise on anything except his own interests is actually a descendant of Moses. Genealogy doesn't matter, does it? Have you seen that in your own family tree? <laughs> Genealogy doesn't matter. Where you attend church, good church, doesn't matter. How much you give doesn't matter. Every individual must come before God personally and individually. Every one of us. No one is related to God through a family tree or through a country or through a denomination or through a local church. We're not related to God by pedigree. As a scholar, Don Carson, said, one generation knows the gospel the next assumes it, and the third loses it. That's pretty typical. So what should the tribe of Dan and Micah from the tribe of Ephraim and Jonathan from the tribe of Levi, what should they have done if you go back and think it through? Well, Judges 18.31 ends this story by saying, so they set up Micah's carved images that they made 
and that Dan's idolatry was feeding off of as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. God had, even in times of complete spiritual darkness and wickedness, still made it possible for his people to approach him, to worship him, to know him, and to live for him. The tabernacle, the, the, the house of God, the, the tent of meeting, that structure that God had Moses build, the dwelling place of God's presence among the people was in Shiloh. He was there. He always was, the, was there. He always had been there. And through the required sacrifices that you find in the law of Moses, through, the, through a ritually pure priest, they could have approached God himself. God should have been the focal point of Micah and the tribe of Dan and, the, and, and all these lives that we're reading about here. And so should God's tabernacle be the focus of our lives. God's tabernacle today is the God-man who in, we read is literally in John 1.14, the word become flesh, tabernacled. That means dwelt, tented among us. If we do not center our lives on Jesus as the way to approach God, as the way to worship God, as the way to know God and live for God, then we are centering our lives just like Micah and the Danites and this corrupt Levite on man-made religion. We're making stuff up as we go along uh, or some sort of idol that we worship more than God in our life. It, it, it's something that can never truly bless, bring peace, and we will not find rest. We'll be restless. Are you restless? It could be a reason. That's chapter 17 and 18. Let's see how far we go into 19 and 21, and uh, may have to finish some of it off next week. We'll see. See how far we get. But that was the first story. Is that bad enough? Actually, when you were, when you were listening to it, did you kind of just shake your head and you almost smiled? It could be seen as quite comical if it wasn't so tragic. But having read it, we are completely unprepared for, and most likely every one of us here should be stunned by the violence in the second story. It's dark, very dark. It's numbingly tragic. So what happens in the scene is in the city of Gibeah. And afterwards, what goes on is, is beyond anything that we have already seen, even the grossness that we've seen through, uh, remember the judge Abimelech and Jephthah? By modern standards, which are filthy standards, it's repulsive. By ancient Israelite standards, it goes down in history as an episode of great shame. Hundreds and hundreds of years later when the prophet Hosea, through God's revelation, is telling Israel, you guys, you're about to get toasted. I mean, you've gone off. This is so bad. God's going to judge you. He uses Gibeah as an illustration. It's in Hosea 9.9. He says, they have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. And God, he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. 
Yet this second story has the same theme as that first story, the desperate need for a Savior. The desperate need for a king who will come in and will rule with justice, will rule with mercy, and will rule with such discernment and wisdom and be that wonderful counselor that we all want in our life today. So we're introduced to another Levite. <laughs> it's interesting. The last two stories are about two Levites, kind of top of the line as far as supposed to be close to God. Neither are. The opening words, 19.1, in those days Israel had no king. There it is again. So they warn us, like we read in the opening lines of 18.1, that what's going to be followed, what's going to follow is what's right in Israel's eyes but evil in the Lord's eyes. And then so returning home from a journey with his concubine, the Levite finds lodging in the city of Gibeah, which is in the tribe of Benjamin, which, side note, 1 Samuel 10 tells us that Gibeah down the road is going to be the city that is the hometown of the future first king of Israel, Saul, which is a huge foreboding for Saul. This is not the hometown you want to have. Most people, I would say, are somewhat familiar with the names Benjamin and Sodom. How, how about you? How many of you are familiar with those two names? Yeah, Benjamin, remember, he's what? That's right, yeah, come on. <laughs> he's one of the sons of Jacob. Okay, yeah, you guys got it. Yeah, just I prod you along. Remember, remember Joseph? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 Joseph. Coat of many colors. It was a great movie. No, no. Joseph, and, he, and, and Benjamin was his favorite, and maybe he hid the cup, the gold cup in his sack of grain when he went back so that he would get in trouble. And Yeah, that's Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And Sodom, enough said. Most of us don't associate these two names together. Mark Twain is reputed to have said, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. <laughs> I like that. Judges 19 is written in such a way that it rhymes with Genesis 19. It's interesting they have the same chapter, 1919. You have the account of Lot in Genesis 19, one of Abraham's nephews. And you have, remember, you have those two angelic visitors who come. They're going to destroy the town of Sodom, um, where Lot had chosen to live. Um, and so there's so many, there's multiple parallels between these two historical accounts. You got travelers arriving at night, uh, planning to have to sleep in the city square because nobody cares. Tells you a little bit about the town, the hospitality. The hospitality comes from not a resident of the city, but someone who's so sojourning in the city. And the men of the city at, at evening uh, surround the house, pound on the door, interrupting the evening meal, and then the men of the city are pounding on the door because they're seeking to engage in illicit sexual relations with the male visitors. Both stories. Both stories have a host protesting this as the greatest of evils. Two women in both stories offered as sacrifices, substitutes for the male visitors. And the inhabitants of the city are later destroyed by an act of judgment. Reading that once in Scripture 
is one too many times. But we're encountering it twice. But there's one major difference between the two stories. And I think it's the main point. In Genesis 19, the evils of Sodom are being performed by wicked Canaanites of whom we do expect this kind of conduct. But in Judges 19, who are the evildoers? They're wicked Israelites, God's chosen people. God had warned the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 7 and and Deuteronomy 18 that due to their inability, more correctly, due to their outright refusal to drive the Canaanites out of the land, God's people would, I, I quote, become just like their evil neighbors. That's happened by the end of Judges. Israelites had become Canaanites. To save his own skin, the Levite gives them his concubine. And then he goes to sleep. The concubine is murdered in the horror of that night. How does the Levite respond to the death of his beloved concubine? What does he do? Verse 27. And her master arose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. Are you beginning to get a feel for this guy? He's a Levite. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his home, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel to the twelve tribes. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never been has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So that's what the concubine, I mean, that's what the um, Levite did. What does Israel do? Chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, which is on the other side of the Jordan River, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, And the chiefs and all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of God, of of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. For the first time, the nation of Israel is united. For the first time since under one of the first judges, Othniel's leadership. But it's united not against an outside enemy. It's united in its repugnance to something done by its own people within its own borders. And Israel doesn't listen to God. Israel does not listen to any judge, but to a deeply morally compromised, lying Levite. Israel listens to the Levite's story, but does not see the Levite for who he is. Because like all false prophets then and all false false prophets today, he edits the truth. 
There's a shade of truth. It's like the serpent lying to uh, Eve in the garden. There's a shade of truth, but it's edited to their advantage. His account of what happened is remarkably self-serving. It's so well edited that he hides any wrongdoing on his part. You and I have never done this, have we? Repeated a story to make us look good or better? No, no. No one here. I've seen other people do it, though. Underlying where the atrocity happened, he claims it was all the men of Gibeah, the whole city, when we know, in fact, that it was some of the wicked men of the city. He said that they were intending to kill me. No, they weren't. He admits to mention that he callously sacrificed his own concubine rather than fighting to protect her in his honor. So no one hearing this account would have suspected that in any way he actually contributed to the death of this girl. They are incensed. They ask the tribe of Benjamin to deliver. The tribe of Benjamin says no. They go to war. And after a few setbacks, we read in in chapter 20, verse 35, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. Wow. And we are told in the text that only 600 men survived, and they're hiding out. They survived the genocide. The entire tribe of Benjamin except these 600 men, all the men, women, animals, and cities were obliterated. Complete genocide, except for these 600 guys. And we'll touch on them next week. So how do the people of Israel respond to this defeat of the tribe of Benjamin by their own hands? Judges 1, 21, verses 1 to 3. Now the men of Israel had sworn when they were back at Mizpah, no one shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. We don't want this tribe to go on. It's too filthy. And the people came to Bethel, and they sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Yeah, Let's put the responsibility on God when things go bad by our own hand. Let's be so spiritually stupid and nearsighted as to have to even ask that question. As this chapter later says at the end in verse 25, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's why these atrocities performed by both sides happened in the first place. And while the wicked men of Gibeah are clearly villains, they're heinously sinful, deserving of swift justice, yes, the Levites' moral performance, though more subtle, isn't any better. And this episode of history is proof of the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, where Paul says that the obviously to our eye, the debauched, wicked world around us is lost in sin. And we all go, yeah, I I see that. I mean, I I see sin around me every day. But then Paul points out in chapter 2 of Romans that the moral, religious, externally good person 
is just as lost in their sin. Under the surface, both neither care about God nor really care about other people. And Paul sums it up with a categorical statement in chapter 3, chapter, in verse 10 and 12, where he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. No one in these last two stories is righteous. No one in the world today is. So how do we react? We've seen how they did. How do we respond? How do we react to the events recorded in Judges 19 through 21? I think one of the authors I read said it best. We should mourn. That should be our response. I think it's a good opportunity for the church to sober up. These are God's people. There are spiritual ancestors. Out of their DNA is going to come the Lord Jesus Christ. And they show us to a great degree ourselves. We all probably have secret, deep buried things in our past. Some of them may even have some resemblance in some small way to the conduct of the Benjamites, or we may not have committed anything like that, and we're saying, yeah, I'm not like that. <laughs> I'm so glad. But we're a lot like the Levite. We failed to prevent things around us from happening on behalf of God. We may have even enabled people to continue doing wicked things through our inaction. We've all told ourselves and others better stories than the truth about who we really are. And as the book of Judges has repeatedly challenged us, we all in some way have allowed ourselves unconsciously and sometimes even consciously to be shaped and enslaved by our culture. We're supposed to be shaped by our Lord and Savior a name that we call upon so often whenever we get ourselves in trouble, just like the Israelites did. Judges tells us that no one is righteous. Judges tells us that we often, like them, live as though there is no king. So let's just do a little checkup before we worship the only one who's worthy of our worship. Checkup time. One question. Easy exam. Did Israel have a king? Of course they did. Who was he? The Lord God. All along, they had a king. Always was, always had been, always will be. We heard it from one of the famous judges, Gideon, back in Judges chapter 8, verse 23, when, he, when they asked him to be the human king. And he said, what? I'll not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. They had a king. They thought they needed a human king. Are we that dumb too that some human leader is going to actually lead us into peace and rest and prosperity? 
Now that's funny. They wanted a king who would rescue them, rule them, change them. So goes the wisdom and the nearsightedness of humans then and definitely even today. The gospel declares that in Jesus Christ, our only hope, our only Savior, we already have an almighty, eternal king. But we first have to grasp and confess that we are more wicked and more desperate than we have ever imagined. One writer said that no other book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as clear a mirror as this book. I'd like to suggest that the book of Judges should be read alongside James, where James says we look in a mirror and we see who we are, the mirror of God's truth, and we walk away and don't change anything. Do nothing about it. We've got to be careful as we blame the church today, as we blame church leaders. It's, that's too easy. Who is the church? You and me. We make up the church. It starts here. And I think that's what Judges is doing. It's forcing us to respond. It's forcing us to repent where it's needed. It's enabling us to receive the forgiveness that is ours through Jesus Christ and then to praise and live out the name of God through the name of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to stand with me and let us praise his name, the only worthy name to be praised, to be named our great and amazing King, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. These are, these are difficult chapters you've left us. Dear God, there are they're horrific. Teach each of us what they are to mean, how they are to be lived out in our life this afternoon and tomorrow. For some to come clean before you, for others to continue on in this great faith. We look to you, the author and finisher, of it all. And Lord, we know you are coming again. And in the meantime, may we be found faithful. So we praise you now. In the name of Jesus, amen.